Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. So a question that I'd like to put to just drive our thinking towards the text that we heard out of 1 Peter today is, how do I live the Christian life? How do I do this Christian life? How do I overcome the highs and lows of it? How do I press through times of doubt, um, conquer seasons of opposition, be victorious in the doldrums of life? Resist the, the pull to put my life on autopilot and kind of just dial it in, as they like to say. And part of the problem of the Christian understanding is that if the faith is not big enough, nor if it's not practical enough, it doesn't sustain us. So big enough. The Christian story is larger than just me. It's larger than just what I think and what I experience. I am part of a big bold, diverse, and beautiful, historic, and heroic story, God's story. And I know that all of us want our life to count for something in this world, something meaningful. So the faith must be big enough, and it also at the same time must be practical enough. I think if uh, the leaders of this church have not explained well how to live the Christian life, we have failed you. The faith must, pardon the expression, work. It must move. It must be effective in my life. I don't need a doctoral thesis or letters behind my name to know how to live the Christian life. Think about this. If you had to sit down with someone across a table with nothing but a napkin and a pen, how would you explain to them what it means to live the Christian life? What would you say? Circles, squares, drawings, some of you know I'm pathologically bad about this. But this is why it's so important for us, I think, and Peter will help us see this in the text, to grasp the power, the beauty, the simplicity, and the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Simply put, Christian life could be categorized in these four big sweeps. Here they are. First of all, God's plan in eternity past. Secondly, regeneration or change of heart, and that's the focus of today. Third, conversion, our response, whether our response to hearing the message of the good news is super dramatic and we do cartwheels and shout for joy, or it's an inward peaceful tranquility that changes our lives. However that happens, conversion, a response to the message of hope. And third, the culmination of all things in glory. That's the big sweep. It is powerful, it is beautiful, it is simple, and it sustains us as we consider it. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I want to know, I want to know the power of the resurrection. So let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us. Thank you, Lord, for this wonder-working power in us. And also, for this time of year, this season, to look and see that things are alive and the world is exciting and moving. And so that same excitement at work in the world because of you is at work in us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Pray by the power of your Holy Spirit 
that Peter's words to us, these scriptures, might teach us what it means to live this Christian life in such a way that whether we find ourselves sophisticated or simple people, we can understand it and know it and live it in our day. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So if you want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll look primarily at the first couple of verses, 3 through 5. So Peter starts off this after his introduction, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to understand how to live the Christian life, you must understand who's behind it. Have a great and glorious vision of the person, our God, who drives our ability to know him and to live the Christian life. And that's why the Apostle Peter starts off with praise. I found this to be true in my life. Little praise, little faith. It's just consistent. Little praise, little faith. And so then Peter starts to explain how blessed God is that he has given us mercy. So there's really a couple of things that I'll take out of the text today, but I want to put the passage back up on the screen. Peter says, By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection. Born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, or it does not spoil, fade, or go away. And it's this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is a power-packed statement that Peter has for us. So I'd like to flesh out the four parts of this and help us then to answer this question, how do I live the Christian life. So we'll start with the first phrase, born anew. This religious leader, as you know, some of you will know this story well, some of this will be new for you. A religious leader, a person who had perfected, he asks him a very simple question. Devotion to his God approached Jesus, and he asks him a very simple question. How do I get eternal life? And you want to think about the question this way. This person who has a mastery over devotion to God is, in essence, at least this is how I understand the text, he's saying to Jesus, it's not enough. I've got devotion. I've got mastery over religious activity. I'm a moral person, and it just, at the end of the day, isn't enough. There's something missing out of my life. How do I get what's missing? And Jesus, in his mysterious way, says, well, you must be born again. And the man who is probably advanced in his years and understands a little bit about biology says, how can that happen? And Jesus gives him this very profound statement. Flesh gives birth to flesh. People make babies. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. The word there is anagenios. It's where we get the word renewal, complete and powerful renewal. This is the word we see born anew. You see, the concept of new birth is at the heart of what it means to live the Christian life. Jesus says 
to Nicodemus, this religious leader, this person who, if you looked at his life, you would probably say, he's mastered the holy life. You must be born again. You know, I grew up hearing that phrase, and I thought that was kind of a type of Christianity or a a certain select, really holy group of people, the born-again Christians, and we had some choice names for them back in the day. Um, But I've come to see it's not a type or a form of Christianity. It is Christianity. If you haven't experienced the new birth, you're not a Christian. You can have Christian ideals. You can quote great Christian thinking. You can articulate a well-ordered Christian worldview. You can have Christian activities, bumper stickers. People could look at your life and say, that's a moral person, a good Christian. But you're not a Christian if you have not been born again. If you don't have this new vitality and identity, at work in your life. The new birth is a spiritual and holy and heavenly birth that comes into us. And it results in us being made alive spiritually. It's why my heart at 19 turned from being completely self-interested in myself and my goals and my future to God-interested. And I've lived the last 30-some years figuring that out. Regeneration is the fancy word for born again or born anew. Regeneration is radical change. It is radical. Even if your life doesn't look radical, what's happening on the inside is radical. Here's what regeneration looks like. We begin to see and hear and seek after divine things. We begin to live a life of faith, trust, and holiness. My life has changed. Now that Christ is formed in our hearts, we are now partakers of this divine nature. There's something at work in us outside of ourselves. We're partakers of this divine nature, and we are now new creatures. The old is gone. The new has come. I am a new person by the new birth of Jesus at work in me. Now, sometimes I want to live that old way, but I get a birthday a second birthday. And sometimes I experience this being new, but I know that the newness in my heart, in our lives because of the gospel, is not my own creation. It's not something I just got religion, figured out, and started singing bluegrass music. It is not something I created on my own. It is something that has happened to me and is happening to me. It comes from a gift of God's mercy. It's God's great love and free gift. It's his rich grace and his abundant mercy to us. And these things are the cause of this new birth in my life, this change. And the mighty power of God, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, is displayed in this change, this regeneration in my heart, and the conversion of my old man or my old woman to new people, Ephesians 1. Let me put up on the screen a very rudimentary explanation of this. It's really fancy and high graphic. Jason Myers, he's out of the country. He'd be disappointed. 
he'll never see this. Um, this is what we call the ordo salutis, or the plan, the order of God's salvation. So here's God in eternity past planning a salvation for a people, his people. And that salvation leads to regeneration internal, a change of heart, born again. And a response to that change of heart is what we call conversion, where we say it out loud. Romans says, unless I believe in my heart, regeneration, and confess with my mouth, conversion, then I'm not saved. So those two things are very important, regeneration and conversion, which culminates at the end of all things in glorification. We see God face to face. Now, some people would reverse it, the middle two, and say, no, it's conversion first, then it's regeneration. Great, good. I'm more interested in the end word than the middle and their order, but I respect different opinions on that. There is no Christian life without new birth. Just like there is no life without your first birth. You have to be born to have life. Now, I know, and the eggheads of us in the room go, but the Christian life, it's certainly very philosophical. It's deep. It's broad. It's immensely challenging. There's things to really wrestle with. Yes, but make no mistakes. The Christian life is not just a collection of inspirational ideas. It is an invasion of your life. It is a hostile takeover. It is two births, a physical birth and a spiritual birth. Now, um, we, I, I shouldn't drag my family into this and assign them with my guilt. Amen. I am terrible about fixing things. My parents come into town, and I usually have a list of about 10 things to give my dad. And this time he's like, no, I'm here to celebrate graduation. I'm off the clock, man. Um, so I don't like to fix things up, but I think this illustration of C.S. Lewis really captures the moment here. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house at first. Perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he, he intends to come and live in it himself. Very practical, tangible, touchable way to explain what it means to be a Christian. God is building something in your house. Born anew means I'm now driven by something else from outside of me. Think of the goals that you have in this life. Think of the hopes that you have. All of you are sitting here with some hope. The longings that you have, the dreams that you have, my goals in life have changed as a result of this new birth. Sometimes that even means your vocation, your calling in life changes. 
But my goals, my aspirations I have in this world, in this life, you know, my son just graduated, so I'm being very sentimental for a moment. Don't get used to it. Um, And I'm reflecting on his change in life and future, and I'm remembering what it was like to sit there back in Perry, Oklahoma, a hundred years ago, it feels like, and I'm seeing, gosh, man, sitting there at 18, my goals are vastly different today than they were 30 years ago. Why? Because of the new birth. My goals in life have changed. This is why we see Paul saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the power to change us. What I work for in this world, serving others, living for justice and mercy, exhibiting compassion, being generous, all of these things change because a new house is under construction. That's the power of new birth. My hopes in life have changed. The things I wish for, they've changed. My view of others have changed. Don't miss this part. See, I used to see people as for me or against me. But because of new birth, I see people as free or bound. Bound in the sense that maybe they haven't yet experienced what it means to have a house renovated of their life. Free in the sense that they get it. So if they're bound, I can be compassionate to them. And if they're free, I can be patient with them. Is this what you're experiencing, this new birth, this new life? Just close your eyes for just a second and imagine your life as a house. What kind of house is being built? Is it a decent little cottage? Or is it a place fit for a king? I love baptisms. I love seeing people come up through the water, cleansed, born again, means that they now have a new life, a new focus, a new chance, and a new start. When I was a young Christian, the guy who discipled me and led me made me memorize scripture. And this was back when we had three by five cards and no electronic devices, and you'd have to hand write them out. And I'm thankful I memorized this, but my memory fades, so I have to write it down to make sure I don't botch it. But I love this passage, and I really do try to say in my prayer times this passage every day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Say this with me. They are new every morning. His mercies are new every day. That's the power of new birth, is I realize my life is a series of new mercies every day. Second chances, clean slates, new opportunities. That's what it means to be born anew. New every morning, but do I take hold of those new mercies? 
So Peter says we're born anew. Second phrase he uses is to a living hope. It's great. He puts the word living there. To a living hope. A new life means that you begin to make your hope very different from how most people define hope. That's a living hope. It's not just idealism, like really some great thinking. It's active. It's at work in you. Your hope drives you. Now, for some people, they might define hope this way, material success, provision, health, respect, friends, influence, freedom, happiness, all great things, nothing wrong with them, but in and of themselves, they really end up spoiling or fading away as life hits you. So Peter is holding out this idea of a new hope, born again to a living hope. We have a hope that holds our future in the present, but it's anchored in the past, the resurrection of Jesus. Our new birth is not the first message of the resurrection, but it is the fact of the resurrection. Our new birth gives us a new vision. Therefore, our hope shifts from the things this life can offer us to the life to come and the life in Christ now. Perhaps your hope has been something like this. If I could just have debt-free college, or which has been mine this month, surviving May, meeting that special person. Perhaps your hope in this life was that having a marriage or children would take away that ache in your soul or that great job. I love this quote from Pat Conroy. He said, I could not quiet that pearly ache in my heart that I diagnosed as the cry of home. See, that home is not the house you grew up in, but rather it's a world truly worth longing for. Now, maybe it's because his movie's out, but I had to throw in a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, who describes hope and the power of a good fairy tale this way. He says, hope, it is the mark of the good fairy tale story of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to the child or man that hears it when the turn comes, catch of breath, a beat and a lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art. This is why Valerie Seguero cried in the movie Endgame. I won't tell you what part she cried. Why did she cry? Because this sense of hope, this sense of sacrifice, this sense of resurrection, this sense of something bigger than ourselves moves us. It moves our heart. This is why Tolkien says, turn, the turn, the great turn in history is the resurrection of Jesus, which means now this living hope that you have is the possibility to be changed. Think about that. Your hope is that you have the power to experience change. Now, some of us would go, ah, but Alan, leopards can't change their spots, right? After all, we are the same old, same old. This is where I think the 
principle of new birth counteracts that. Because of God's great mercy, his mercies are new every day, you have the power to be changed into the likeness of Jesus. So born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Think of these words, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What brought this living hope to you? The fact that Jesus walked out of a grave. Why is this so important, you might ask? The resurrection is not just a fact that solves everything, but rather it's the basis of understanding how God works in our lives. He works this new birth in us like the power of resurrection. To Jesus' people, resurrection was something that happened to everyone at the end of the times. They all believed in a resurrection from the dead, but it was after everything happened. Not in the middle of history, this person Jesus resurrected. But because Jesus is resurrected, we have this power, this power, this wonder-working power in our lives. Most every Tuesday night, I'm driving home from Atlanta, and I get to chat on the phone with a friend. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's an hour and a half, sometimes it's two hours. And on paper, his life is a tragic series of devastating behaviors. Great pain caused to others and great loss. Yet something beautiful is happening in this person. New birth. Think about that. New birth. He said, I've been in church all my life, and I didn't understand this new birth the power of the resurrection to truly change me. This is why Peter concludes his great phrase together of God's mercies with this last one. So born anew into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, my sister and I used to run around my parents' house, and we would put sticky notes on the things that we were going to get. <laughs> and she lived closer, so naturally she's probably going to make out better. Um, but it was this joke of inheritance. And so when my mom and dad say, well, we bought a new printer or something, I say, you're spending our inheritance. You need to approve this with us first. They don't think it's as funny as I do. Um, <laughs> But Paul, Peter is saying here that through the resurrection of the dead, you've been given an inheritance which is imperishable. It is undefiled and it's unfading. We don't often think about that for the language. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's on your behalf. It's being protected for you until the day when you're ready to have it. When Christ is revealed and, the, and through faith your salvation is made known. It's very important, friends, to understand God's promises to us. He promised the people of faith they would get a land, an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that promised inheritance helped them to press on. I know an inheritance is coming, this land, so I can endure 
to gain that land. I can put up with, I can move around, I can overcome the obstacles of life because I know there's an inheritance coming, a promised land, milk and honey. I can wait and I can persevere for that inheritance. And they held this sure title because of who promised it to them, God. For the Christian, though, we've been given a sure title to an inheritance, a greater inheritance than just real estate. Before I explain it, let me describe it. It can never perish, the inheritance God has promised you through this new birth. It never perishes. It can never spoil. It will not fade away. It's kept in heaven for you. And it's guarded. The word there is shielded on your behalf. What is the inheritance of a Christian? Yes, land, new heavens, new earth, all those things. No more tears, no more pain, all these promises. But here's what is your inheritance. It's your salvation, seeing Jesus face to face. That's the promised inheritance. That's the work of building a house, being made ready for a king to come and live there. You know, the thing about inheritance works this way, that that when you know an inheritance is coming and your heart is set on it, even its foretastes, even its little glimpses bring you great joy. This is the power of the Eucharist. The inheritance to come is that we will feast with Jesus face to face. We'll be his family. We'll sit at his table. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. But ultimately, we get to sit face to face with the resurrected Lord. That's our inheritance. So because of that glimpse into an inheritance, even a foretaste of it, bread and wine can be deeply powerful in our lives. It's what Tim Keller says, a foretaste is better than an aftertaste of lesser hopes. Our salvation is our inheritance, the full glory of being with God forever. Okay, let me conclude with this. Why is this so important? Because without understanding new life, new birth, and the power of the resurrection, the gravity of our life will return us to our old self. The gravity of life, the pulls and tugs of life, will want to make us think and live like our old self again, not the new house being built. And my old self, as comfortable as it can be, places hopes in things that fade away. So the gravity of life comes along and says, you're really not new, you're really not changed, this stuff isn't true, you need to think like your old way. Look out for yourself. Take care of yourself. Protect yourself, old way thinking. And so a person who looks out for themselves and thinks for themselves and guards themselves sets hopes on things that fade away. Proverbs says, hope disappointed makes the whole heart sick. 
So the fading reality of hope, it diminishes your ability because you've set your hopes on things that fade away. It takes away your ability to persevere when life comes at you hard. But not you, Peter says. You are born anew. You are a new creation. You've been born anew to a living hope, a new outlook of what is important. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, victory over death, and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We didn't have this verse read, but in verse 12, down the page of your passage, you see it. Peter says, these things are so great that angels long to look into them. That is the power of resurrection in you and me. Amen.